the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 8, we're reading or looking together particularly at verses 9 to 13, but I'll be reading all of chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. If you're visiting with us, we are in the middle of, of a, a bigger series in the book of Romans, sort of on and off, coming back to it. We've come now uh, to this great chapter of Romans chapter 8, and we do hope that, that God's word would be a rich encouragement to your souls this morning as we study it together. Now, here from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, this is God's word. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Amen. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. When Elizabeth and I got married here in 2001, a friend of ours came up to me at the rehearsal dinner the night before the wedding, and he gave me some wise counsel. He said, live out the oneness that is already yours. Live out the oneness, live it out, that oneness that is already yours. Right? The Bible tells us that uh, when a man and a woman marry, the, the two become one flesh. We are one as husband and wife. But if you're married, you know that it's a lot easier to say that we are one and to, to actually be one, to say one, right, to say that we should be one, than it is to actually be one. Right? It's, it's much more difficult to be one. Particularly in those early days of marriage when you still tend to think like a single man, right? You still tend to think like a single woman and the way you spend your time, your daily habits, the way you spend your money, the way you make decisions, right? The, the way you think about outside relationships, it, it, you still are tending to think like a, a single person, but you're one. And so you must be what you are. Your new status as married must change the way that you live. What is already true of you must drive what ought to be true of you. And it's that gap between the, the is and the ought. What is true of you and what ought to be true of you. That throughout our married life, we are working to shrink 
all our days. That gap between the is and the ought. Well, in our text this morning, we see that this, uh, this principle that applies to every married couple also applies to every single believer in Jesus Christ. Paul, here in this text, going back to verse 1, has, has declared the Christian's freedom from the rule, the reign of, of sin and death, from the penalty and the power of sin. And then in verses 5 and, and following, he has laid forth the, dis, the differences between those who are not Christians and those who are, are Christians. And now in chapter 8, verse 9, uh, Paul turns specifically to what is true of every Christian. What is true of us? And what therefore ought to be true of us if we are Christians. Right? And what ought to be true of us is that we ought to be engaged in this daily battle. Right? And, and again, the battle is, is often found in that trying to, to, to shrink that gap between the is and the ought. The, the battle is, is to say, here's who I am and here's who I ought to be. And can those things come together more and more? But we're not battling in our own strength, Paul's going to tell us here. What, what's true of us is the engine that drives what ought to be true of us. If you've ever had a, a child or a grandchild playing with, with Hot Wheels, and, and maybe you've bought them a, a, one of those Hot Wheels racetracks that, that has the battery-operated little engine that, it, that, that throws the car around and around and around and around again and again. Right? Well, what Paul is telling us here is, is that the, the indicatives of the Christian life, what is true of you, drives and impels what ought to be true of you, the imperatives that he lays forth for us here in this passage. And so here in this text, verses 9 through 13, we have a rich encouragement for our soul. This is who you are. And we have sober exhortation. This is who you ought to be, therefore. This is classic Paul because it's, classic God to lay it out like this in his word. So let's think first together, what is true of us? What is true of every Christian in this room this morning? Well, here's the answer in a nutshell. The spirit of God dwells in you and therefore you can please God. You belong to Jesus. And even if you die, you will live. You will be raised to life. Let's think about those things together. This is what's true of you if you're a believer. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, we could say that, that all three persons of the Trinity dwell within the believer. Right? Paul explicitly mentions here the, the Spirit in Christ in verses 9 and, and 10. But we saw, didn't we, in John 14, that even the Father comes to make his home within us. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit dwell within us as Christians. But in this text, Paul is specifically focusing on the Spirit. And notice how he, he describes the Holy Spirit. He describes him as the Spirit of God, verse 9. The Spirit of Christ, verse 9. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Again, a reference to the, the, the Father, the Spirit of the Father. It's this sort of language that, that led the church in time to confess the, the deity of the Spirit, the deity of the Son, and ultimately to formulate the, the doctrine of the Trinity, that, that, that the, the one God, eternally exist in three distinct persons. And that these persons are the same in substance, equal in power and glory. And this triune God, and in particular for our purposes this morning in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. He lives within you. He has taken up a residence within you. 
Not, not like someone staying the weekend or you staying in an Airbnb, a Verbo for a, a week. No, this is permanent residence. The Holy Spirit dwells within each and every believer in Jesus. Our bodies have been consecrated and set apart as a temple of God by his Spirit. And here's the point. Here's why this matters. Throughout church history, there's been at times this tendency for the church to teach that, that, look, some Christians have the Spirit and other Christians don't have the Spirit. Right? Some Christians are spiritual, but other Christians, well, they're, they're carnal. Right? Some Christians have the Spirit and have been baptized in the Spirit. Other Christians, eh, you know, you haven't yet been baptized in the Spirit yet. You don't have the Holy Spirit yet. And Paul would say, what are you talking about? What are you, what are you talking about? Where, where does that come from? Because what Paul is telling us here is that every believer in Jesus has the indwelling spirit in his heart. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you aren't a believer. You aren't a Christian. Look at what he says there in verse 9. He says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you're not one in whom the Spirit dwells, you're not a Christian. But if you are a Christian, the Spirit dwells in you, Paul is saying. Every Christian has been given the Holy Spirit. It's the initial gift of, of God to his elect. The Spirit is the one who causes us to be born again. The Spirit is the one who, who causes us to, to no longer be, be in sin. But he moves us positionally out of sin. And he then begins progressively to make us more and more like Jesus. He sanctifies us definitively and progressively. And again, we see, though, in church history, this, this tendency to, to try to, to, to have sort of a two-story spirituality, a two-tier, almost a caste system of sorts, right? Of saying, look, some of you, you know, are Christians but, and, and you really have the Spirit. Some of you are Christians and like, eh, the Spirit's not really in you yet. And Paul would say, no, no. And if you've ever been around this, this sort of thinking, then, then you've seen what happens. You've seen how for, for those who, who are, are truly believers, they are made to feel less than believers. Right? There's this division between the haves and the have-nots, between the, the really spiritual people and the not-so-spiritual people. Right? You've seen it perhaps in places where, you know, it's like, look, the pastors, the missionaries, the monks, the nuns, right, the priests, they're the really spiritual people. And then the rest of you right, are over here in this group right? or the ones who have all the gifts of the spirit and then the rest of you who don't right? or the spiritual Christian and the carnal Christian. And so there's this division that happens in the church and those who truly are believers are made to feel as less than believers. But on the other hand, those who are not believers are made to think that they are believers. Say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm just not a spiritual Christian, right? I'm a carnal Christian. I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, but he's not my Lord yet. You're like, Paul would say, what are you talking about? How can you call yourself a Christian if you don't have the Holy Spirit? How can you think you're going to heaven if you could care less about being made fit for heaven? And if you got to heaven, you wouldn't even enjoy it. But Paul says, no. Is there a Christian who doesn't have the Spirit? Absolutely not. Every Christian, every believer has the Holy Spirit living inside him or her. And every believer has all that the Spirit's presence entails. Well, what is that? Well, 
Again, look at the things that Paul tells us here in this text. Because of the Spirit's indwelling presence, first, we can please God, verse 9 tells us. Last week, Dean unpacked verses 5 to 8. We saw that if you're not a Christian, then you are still in the flesh. Your spiritual address is the flesh. That is, you're still under the enslaving power of sin. You're under the control of that tyrant. You're still under the condemning wrath of God. The penalty of God is still upon you. You are dead in your sins. Your mind, as we saw in verses 5 to 8, is, is set on the things of the flesh, the desires, the motives, the affections, the intentions, the goals of sin. You are hostile to God as his enemy. You do not submit yourself to God's law, and you are unable to submit yourself to God's law. Because Paul says in, in verse 8, anyone in the flesh cannot please God. You're unable to please him. But now in verse 9, Paul does a U-turn, doesn't he? He says, you, however, talking to the church in Rome, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, your address has changed permanently, your spiritual address. And that makes all the difference in the world. Some of you are familiar with the, the city of Bristol. It's half in Virginia and half in Tennessee. And, uh, you know, the same way that we might, we might cross County Line Road to go from one county to the next, uh, they cross State Street, you know, and they go from one state to the next. But it's all one city. And, and if you live on the Tennessee side, you pay no state income tax. Right? But if you live on the Virginia side, you do pay state income tax. But if you're on the Virginia side, right, your real estate taxes are three times less and your, your sales tax is less than on the Tennessee side. And you say, well, maybe it's sort of a wash. You know, Virginia, Tennessee, you know, six to one, half dozen to the other. It's just Bristol, right? It's just Bristol. We live in Bristol. Right? But what Paul is saying here is that if you live in the address called the spirit or the address called the flesh. It's absolutely not a wash. Everything has changed. It makes an absolute and an eternal difference. The Christian has the spirit dwelling in him and therefore is not in the flesh and therefore can please God, can please God no longer are you under the, the control and the direction and the, the dominion, the tyranny of sin. No longer are you unable to obey God's law, but you can finally now obey the law of God. You're able to live in a manner pleasing to him rather than living only to please yourself. You're able to obey God now and to disobey sin. You're able to love him and to serve him rather than loving and serving self and, and Satan. As we saw in verse four, you are now finally able to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law of God. This whole new world of ability and opportunity has been opened up to you because the spirit dwells inside of you. I wonder if you believe this. Do you believe even now that you as a believer in Jesus Christ indwelt by the Holy Spirit are able to please God? You are able to please him. Or do you look at the law of God and you think, oh, it's so burdensome. It's such a, an onerous thing that we have to keep. It's so oppressive. It just is designed to keep us enslaved. That's the way Satan thinks about God's law. That was the, the lie that Satan was trying to sell to Eve there in the Garden of, of Eden. This is walking according to the flesh to think that way. Right? To think that the law of God is burdensome is the way the mindset on the flesh thinks. But the mindset on the spirit sees that God's law is for our good. 
and rejoices that finally, now at last, we are enabled to live as we have been created by God to live. We can please him. We can love him. We can do what he commands. We can submit to his law because we have been transferred from the kingdom and the reign and the rule of sin and Satan and death to the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the second thing that's true. If, if the spirit dwells in you, not only can you please God, but also you belong to Jesus. You see Paul say that again in a negative way and by implication, verse nine, he says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So implied is if you have the spirit of Christ, you do belong to Jesus. You belong to him. He, he is yours and you are his. You no longer belong to Satan. You no longer belong to sin. You are no longer your own even. You're no longer a spiritual outcast or an orphan or a reject or homeless or an enslaved prisoner. Rather, you have a new family, a new home. You have a new husband, a new Lord and master. Jesus Christ is yours and you are his. And he is a benevolent Lord, isn't he? Because he's our elder brother. He's our heavenly bridegroom. He is our good shepherd and our prince of peace. We belong to Jesus who only wants what is good for us and who knows what is good for us and knows that, 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 that holiness leads to happiness. And so he desires our holiness. If you struggle this morning with doubting the kindness of, of Jesus, all you have to do is remember what he has paid to make you his own. And remember that he has given you his Holy Spirit. Jesus has shed his own blood that we might have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, that we might know that we belong to him. And therefore, belonging to him, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, we must glorify him in our earthly bodies. For these earthly bodies, though they will die, yet one day they will be raised to life, which is the third thing that we see from this text that being indwelt by the Spirit makes true of us. What's true of us, verses 10, 11, is that even if we die, we'll be raised to life. Look at what Paul says. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Paul's saying, look, the wages of sin is death. Because of sin, our body is dead. It's as good as dead. It's immortal. Right? The, the process of aging and death is at work within us. And there's nothing that mortal man can do to stop that. In spite of all of our techno marvels and medical marvels, everyone in this room is going to die, even Christians. Maybe you've wrestled with that. Wait a minute, Lord. My sins are forgiven. The wages of sin is death. My sins have been forgiven. Why do I still have to die? If Jesus has died in my place, why do I still have to die? Our Westminster Larger Catechism has beautifully answered that question. Listen to its answer. It says, The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day, and even in death are delivered from the sting and the curse of it, so that although they die, yet it is out of God's love to free them perfectly from sin and misery, to make them capable of further communion with Christ in glory, which they then enter upon. That's a beautiful answer. There's so much there in it, but it's this, the first little part of it that Paul is focusing on here in, in Romans 8. The righteous shall be delivered from death itself at the last day. Because if you are a Christian, 
that you have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have been justified by grace through faith before God through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, has received the Holy Spirit that he might pour it out upon you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And therefore, as Paul says there, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of life will bring life to your body. On the last day, Paul says that just as surely as the Father raised the Son, so we will be raised. The Father will raise us through his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us as an assurance, as a guarantee, as a a down payment, a deposit to confirm to us and to assure us that this will happen to you. The, the spirit is, as it were, an engagement ring. But, you know, engagements can be broken. The ring can be given back. But the Holy Spirit is an engagement ring that is 100% sure. There is no going back when God's promise has been made to us. When the Holy Spirit has been given, the gift of the spirit convinces us beyond a shadow of a doubt that our mortal bodies will be raised to newness of life. The life-giving power of the Spirit at work within us, even on the day that Jesus returns, if we die, it will be given new life once more. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, this is true of you. The Spirit indwells you, and therefore you can please God, and therefore you belong to Jesus, and therefore even if you die, your body will be raised to life again. Do you believe this? Do you know these things? Do you embrace what Paul says here? This is true of you. But I've got to say, if you're not a Christian, if you're not believing in Jesus, then none of that is true of you. The Holy Spirit does not indwell you. You are still in the flesh. You are still a slave to sin. You cannot please God. You do not belong to Jesus. If you are not believing and trusting in him, then when you die, yes, you will be raised, but it will not be to life. It will be to judgment. And so there's a warning here. Even in the picture that Paul paints of what is true for the believer, it causes us all to search our hearts and say, am I a Christian? Does the Spirit dwell within me? But if you're a Christian and you know that the Spirit dwells within you, this is true of you, and it cannot change. All of this, will always be true of you. And so if it's true of you, then what ought to be true of you? Again, here's what is true. What ought to be true, Paul goes to next. And you see it there in verses 12 and 13. He tells us what ought to be true of us in light of what is true of us. Look at verses 12 and 13. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what is it that ought to be true of us? Well, it's that we as Christians, as Spirit-indwelt believers in Jesus Christ, we will engage in the daily warfare of killing sin, of mortifying the deeds of the body, of putting to death every sinful desire and motive and feeling and affection and intention and purpose and goal, every sinful thought or word or deed, we are engaged in a spiritual war. And we are actively engaged in it. We must be actively engaged in it. 
Notice Paul says the, the deeds of the body. He writes that not because he believes the body is sinful or that it's the source of sin or, or that he's only concerned with bodily sins. No, Paul here is being very concrete and practical. He, he is recognizing that at, at all times, uh, we as creatures, as humans, are embodied souls. That when we sin, the body is, is the, the vehicle through which sin expresses itself. I mean, think about it. If, if you are struggling with lust, yes, it may be in your mind, but it's your eyes that are engaged in that sin as well. You may covet in your heart, but that coveting will eventually lead itself to, to stealing with your hands. You, you desire to, 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 to do a wicked thing and you plan it and you scheme it, but it's your feet that will carry out that plan. Even your, your spine holds you up and sustains your, your body as your soul sins. Our body is engaged in sin. Our body supports our sin. So Paul here is saying we must mortify, we must kill, we must put to death the deeds of the body. We must actively seek to kill every sin that we find popping itself up in our life. Some of you perhaps remember or have had kids that have been played with that, that whack-a-mole game at Chuck E. Cheese, right, where the, the moles come up and you take them out and you knock them down, and it's never-ending. Well, that's the way it is in the Christian life. Every day there are new sins that pop and raise their ugly head and we must whack them, we must knock them down. We must continue again and again and again. The Christian life is daily warfare and if you don't realize that, if you don't believe that, then you have been sold a bill of goods about the Christian life. Becoming a Christian means you are entering as a soldier in the Lord's army and, and the, the, you're a soldier to fight first and foremost your own sinful flesh, your own sinful desires. Every day, this warfare ought to be true of us as believers. It ought to be. You notice the language that Paul uses there. He uses this language of debtors. But look at how he says it. Explicitly, he says, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. That is, we owe no obligation to the flesh any longer. We don't owe any obligation to, to hear or to heed the voice of our former master. How contradictory it would be to yield ourselves in service to the the, the one from whom we've been delivered and rescued. No, as Paul implies, though, we are debtors to the Spirit. We have an obligation to the Spirit to live according to the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit. This is how we ought to live because the Spirit lives inside of us and because this is the only path of life. If we persist in walking according to the flesh, then we show ourselves to be under the control of the flesh and we will die. Eternally, we will die. But if the spirit dwells in you, if you are dead to sin and Jesus Christ, then you will live as you mortify the deeds of the body. You see, the, the presence of the spirit doesn't make mortification of sin unnecessary. It makes it absolutely necessary and it makes it possible. And here's the best thing I think about this text. Paul calls us to actively engage in putting sin to death, but he does not expect that we will do that in our own strength, by our own power. No, what does he say? If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, as we seek to put sin to death, we must be at every moment dependent upon the Spirit's enabling. Where does the desire to mortify sin come from? It comes from the Spirit. Where does the determination 
to mortify sin come from? It comes from the Spirit. Where does the discipline to mortify sin come from? It comes from the Spirit. Where does the actual death of sin come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. We must, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body. But does this mean that we just sort of sit back and and let go and let God and wait and and hope that eventually the Spirit's going to move us and and we're going to really want to hate our sin and want to put it to death and, and, and get rid of it? Do we just sort of, are we passive? No, Paul is clear here. We are active. The obligation is on us. But the obligation is, is to be dependent upon the Spirit as we actively pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. We are never independent of the Spirit's work within us. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for we know that God is at work in us to enable us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Think about it this way. There's a war right now, you know, in Ukraine, and the Ukrainians are fighting the Russians, and, and they are fighting the Russians with, with weapons from the Western armies, the Western militaries, the Western countries. If they were to rely upon their own weapons, they would surely lose the war. But imagine that they received these weapons and they received the training from the Western armies, but then they didn't use those weapons. Well, they would surely lose the war as well. So how are they doing it? They are receiving the weapons and the training from the West, but then they are using those weapons. They are actively using them to engage the Russian forces. They're dependent upon the West, but they are also active in fighting the battle and the struggle. And the same is true of the Christian life. We must be mortifying sin, putting it to death, killing it, Jesus uses that graphic language of gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand, taking up your cross and following him, taking up your cross. Remember, Jesus carried his cross to the place of crucifixion. That's all language of death and language of, 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 of putting things off and, and killing things. We're to be actively engaged in this, but always in reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit always dependent upon the power of the Spirit at work within us, never in our own strength, never in our own confidence, never in our own abilities. The Spirit dwells in us. We know that we can please God. We know we belong to Jesus. We know that even if we die, our bodies will be raised to life again. These things are true of us. And therefore, what ought to be true of us is that we would actively kill sin. Now again, we We come back to that gap, don't we? The gap in marriage between the is and the ought. The same is true in the Christian life. There's this gap between what is true of us and what ought to be true of us. And we're seeking to bring that that gap, make it smaller and smaller. It's so easy to forget our dependence upon the Spirit. It's so easy to forget our, our need to be actively engaged in this warfare. This isn't an easy life we live as Christians. And it's easy to lose heart, isn't it? But here's the thing you must remember. You must remember that what is already true of you does not become less true of you when what ought to be true of you is not always true of you. Thank you for laughing. Someone said after they said, that was a lot of double negatives, triple negatives. Like, what did you say? Listen to this. It's important. 
what is already true of you, you may need to like write it down, right? What's already true of you does not become less true of you when what ought to be true of you is not always true of you. Do you get that? If you're a Christian, what is true of you does not change. It doesn't become less true of you. The spirit indwells you. You can please God. You belong to Jesus. Your body will be raised to life. What's already true of you does not become less true of you because what ought to be true of you is not always true of you. You're going to fail. You're going to fall. Someone came up to me after the first service and shared, David and Bathsheba, he failed, he fell. There was discipline. But what did God say to David? I will not take away my loving kindness from you. Just because what ought to be true of you is not always true of you, doesn't mean that that what is true of you becomes any less true of you. You are the Lord's. You're indwelt by his spirit. And so as we fail, as we fall, we must remember and believe that God is at work within us. We must remember and believe every day anew that we must kill sin by the spirit. We must put on the armor of God. We must depend upon the spirit. And through prayer and meditation on the word of God, we must go to war every day. You wake up and, and you have your calling, your vocation. Every day you wake up and, and you are whatever it is you do for a living. Or if you're retired, you have your plans for the day. But every day, every single one of us who believe in Jesus Christ wakes up and we are a soldier. A soldier. We are in, in the military. We are called to engage in combat, hand-to-hand combat, heart-to-heart combat against the deeds of the body and the sin that so easily entangles us but we must never forget what is true of us. It never changes. We must never forget that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So brothers and sisters, take heart, be encouraged, be exhorted, but know that God is at work in you by his spirit. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your rich promises, for these glorious realities that your spirit lives within us and all that follows from that. The Lord, may we be enabled by your spirit more and more to put sin to death, to live a holy life because you are holy, because Jesus has died to make us a holy people. The Lord, we cannot do this in our own strength. And so we need your grace even to want it even to desire it and and to be disciplined toward it, certainly to accomplish it. Lord, we are a needy people. And so would you be pleased even this week to show us those areas of our life, whether our thought life, our our speech life, our, our physical life, whatever it might be. Lord, show us where we need to be killing sin so that it will not be killing us, so that we might live the abundant life you have called us to live in Christ by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.